I doubt you saw much uh, about this in the news cycle unless you listen to, uh, you know, Fox Business or Bloomberg or something like that. It's just with all of the attention that can be gained from talking about the protests and about COVID, um, news like this usually goes under the radar, uh, especially with uh, mainstream media. But the Fed cut the bond rates down to just 0.25%. They were at about 7.5%, sorry, 0.75% uh, before this cut. And the question that we're going to ask today is whether or not we're going to go the way of Europe and end up with negative rates. That's right, negative rates. And to understand how we get there, we have to understand what cutting the rate does. And essentially what cutting the bond rate does is attempts to do a couple things. One, keep banks lending. And how this works is it essentially uh, can help keep interest rates low, which keeps people who may normally have trouble borrowing or maybe worried about borrowing it. it helps keep consumer debt and interest in taking on consumer debt, it, it, it keeps that open. And then also for banks with capital reserves, which is obviously all of them, uh, it helps them in terms of being the debtor with uh, not clamping up, essentially not taking on any more risk. And so that is one of the avenues that the Fed and the reasoning that the Fed cuts the bond rate. And the other uh, reason is that they're essentially trying to buy growth. And you saw this a lot with uh, the response to 2008. We need to reinflate bubbles is the monetary idea. We need to combine low bond rates with the printing of money. And this will, in theory, have people go out and spend a lot more because money is, again, going to be cheaper because banks are still going to be able to lend, businesses will be able to stay open, and because of that, it will lessen the impact of an economic downturn. Now, uh, again, uh, if any of you have been following me for a length of time, you know that I follow Simon Black as far as somebody who I get a lot of my perspective from. And a couple of years ago, he had a great point where um, you know, our GDP has increased by about $7 trillion since 2008. And so proponents of largely Keynesian economics and, and modern monetary theory will say that, look, you know, we were able to soften the blow of the Great Recession. We were able to not only grow, but, but you know, we bought $7 trillion worth of GDP growth. We can keep interest rates low. Um you know, and essentially, we've been able to keep the banking system running like a well-oiled machine, despite coronavirus pandemics and um, the financial crisis of uh, 2008 and 2000. But Simon points out that we also added, in that same time frame, 2008 to 2018, we added 12 trillion of debt, and. National debt is a little bit different than personal debt in the sense that you always want your national, uh, your GDP to grow at a clip higher than your national debt. And we added $12 trillion worth of debt for $7 trillion worth of GDP growth. 
What does this mean? Well, this means that we exceeded, obviously, by $4 trillion, the amount of debt to GDP in terms of that ratio, which is not a winning proposition. But of course, the answer to the coronavirus lockdowns and the use of government force to shut down the economy, uh, we're going to essentially try to do the same thing, add a ton of debt uh, in order to buy back the GDP growth that we saw at the first part of the Trump presidency, and it may erase those gains in the sense that, you know, if we add $10 trillion worth of debt and cannot, with our GDP, outpace that number, even in the next decade, you're going to start to see uh, some real problems with the U.S. financial system. And this only gets worse if we push things like universal health care through because we're going to add more and more debt. Democratic estimates or, or um, estimates that are friendly to the Democratic Party still say it'll be $35 trillion a year, money we don't have. Now, of course, that's not 100% debt, but that alone way outweighs the U.S. GDP, which again is only $23 trillion, which is still great. One of the, It's the largest economy in, in human history, but government debt and spending can wipe that away pretty quickly. So what does this mean? Well, I would argue it means that the common household needs much more real assets. Whether it's real estate, whether it's precious metals, um, you know, whether it's simply putting things... It's hard because with the bond cuts, it, it gets harder and harder to put things in a safer position. Bank CDs won't earn what they used to. Certainly government bonds are junk now. Uh, it's very hard even when... And there's a buzzword called uh, diversification. Of course, that means different things to different people, but st in the standard definition of it, it means, you know, you put some of your money in stocks and some of it in bonds and all of that. That's gone. It won't even outpace inflation now at, that, at this rate. So what does that do? It forces people into more volatile positions. It exposes the average saver to much more risk. And again, as we went over in the last lesson, and if you missed that, uh, we posted that on Thursday... Buy and hold strategies are really being hurt by a lot of market speculation, which is part of the reason why you're seeing the market jump around like a jumping bean, as it has been um, recently. You know, that that it's going to hurt a lot of people who have buy and hold strategies, which is a, a lot of the strategies that, that make use of diversification in terms of uh, putting different assets into bonds and that kind of thing. So not only does it eliminate, on one hand, the, the federal uh, rate cut, not only does that hurt, on one hand, the ability to put your money away in safe investments, but then that also, or traditionally uh, safe investments, but then on the other side, too, uh, the buy and hold strategy is not nearly as viable as it was. This is a problem, and again... I think it's. I think the solution is going to have to be that the average investor is either going to have to play the speculation game, and I don't think a lot of people want to do that because that in and of itself is a job. And if somebody wanted to do that, you know what? They would have a job as a speculator. So you only need one buck to do that. 
So the other solution would be to buy real assets that are more impacted by a local economy or something that is much more dependable than the stock market. And the other side too, you need a leverageable base. You need something that's going to appreciate, that is guaranteed to appreciate, and then you can borrow against it to buy into all these different things that cost money and also to avoid the market while still having some semblance of a gain and still outpacing inflation. So I think the private reserve strategy, the Jacksonian finance strategy, the Southern Reserve strategy, these are all going to become so much more important to the average American. And instead of just being used for those who already have a lot of money and who make a great deal, I think the strategy is going to have to come down at some point to the average American. Or else we're going to see a lot of people who are not going to end up with as much money as they thought they did. And then that's going to come back on the government with Social Security and welfare programs. And it's going to increase taxes. And it's just going to make us all the less efficient. And we can't afford that right now. With that being said, I do think, though, that, that there is hope at the end of the tunnel. I think that a lot of people are starting to realize this fact. I think there's right now, at least with the people that I deal with on a daily basis, I'm seeing a lot less people who are excited about the stock market or willing to fall for the Wall Street sales pitch. And that is giving us all some hope.